From the concert halls to the juke joints, from churches to festivals in the fields, welcome to another episode of Bill Street Caravan, celebrating the sounds of Memphis and the Mississippi Delta for more than 20 years. Hi, I'm your co-host, Jared J.B. Boyd. And I'm your co-host, Thomas Cribbins. Happy vacation, Pat. <laughs> hey, Pat, I hope you're enjoying yourself out there in the wide, wide world. This week on Bill Street Caravan, we're hanging out with some friends from right up the road in one of our sister cities, Kansas City, Missouri. That's making movies. And also, Grammy-nominated blues man Guy Davis will be with us to deliver an installment of the Blues Hall of Fame, an exploration of the lives of the pioneers and innovators enshrined in the Blues Hall of Fame here in Memphis, Tennessee, brought to you by the Blues Foundation. That's all coming up right now on Bill Street Caravan. What's going on, Thomas? What's going on, JB? This week, we're getting together with some friends from right up the road in nearby Kansas City, Missouri. That's right, JB. Our sister city, Kansas City, they've got their own version of some smoking blues, some smoking barbecue, maybe even a little jazz, too. Absolutely. But one thing that they have that we definitely do not have, we'll, we'll sh we, we share them here and we there. We do share them. Are the band Making Movies, which is a blend of some Mexican flavors, some Central America, some South America, some soul, jazz, African, and everything in between. That's right, man. Those guys put on an amazing show of Latin-inspired rock and fusion and jazz, man, and the energy is some of the highest level energy I've seen uh, come across these stages here in Memphis. Absolutely. The band is fronted by a good friend of ours, Enrique Chi, and his brother Diego. They're both Panamanian. And then there's Juan Carlos, who's from Mexico, and Duncan on drums, who's from Kansas City. Shout out to those guys, man. I've had a chance to be on the road with them uh, at Folk Alliance in Kansas City. That was near there, uh, in their stomping ground. And uh, they did what they always do, man. They leave a mark, and they leave the crowd wanting more. You know, uh, since they played in Memphis, probably last year, I believe it was, at the Overton Park Shell, Everyone in town's been asking when they're going to come back. And, you know, they dip in and out of town quite a bit. Sometimes they make a lot of noise, and sometimes they're actually doing things that have nothing to do with performing on stage. These guys are also activists. That's right, JB. They come in town, and, and they have a, a passion for the music, but also a passion for people, and they just find different ways to do it. And I'll let you know, right to your point, they were just here at Minglewood last week. They were shooting a video. It wasn't a public performance, like you said, but they were taking care of some business right here in Memphis, man. So I think they enjoy it here as much as we enjoy having them here. Well, the cool thing is that Memphis and Kansas City are both a part of the same Recording Academy chapter. And Enrique from Making Movies is actually a governor in the chapter. And the amazing thing about that is that a lot of their management is here in town and he has other business uh, opportunities here in town that help to support musicians and other groups and other ensembles and solo acts. And so Enrique and his partners in the band have really wrapped their arms around Memphis as a second home. And because of that Missouri, Tennessee, Midwest, Southern translation, they speak a lot of languages in that group. And I mean that as far as linguistically and I mean that musically. But Memphis is a big part of that SOPA, as they call it. Their album is called SOPA, which is XOPA in uh, the making movies nomenclature. But a lot of people would know that word is SOPA, the soup. So they put a lot of different ingredients in that soup. 
Thanks so much, JB. I've got the T-shirt, but I've got to admit I didn't know what XOPA. Hey man, that, that's why I'm the journalist in the crew, man. I get the, I get the stories out of them. Indeed, man. Yeah, those guys. I I, I think it's no coincidence that uh, they've become attached to Memphis, and Memphis has become attached to them. Uh, Memphis is this place of soul, man. And, and no matter what those guys are doing on stage, you can hear them doing. Everybody wants to rule the world uh, with ukuleles and Latin-inspired rhythms, but it's soul still. It's it's soul. All I mean, they get, it's been a movement. I had a chance to catch them at the Levitt Shell uh, in 2022, and I mean, you thought they had an orchestra on stage with them, and it was just that handful of guys, and and then they moved that park like I've never seen. Well, let's go ahead and get into this performance. This is at Bill Street Music Fest, right? That's correct. That's correct. Let's check out Making Movies live on Bill Street Caravan.
minutes with you all left and it feels a little short so since we made our album here in Memphis are you all right if we play some songs from our new album this song I'm gonna teach you a little Spanish this song is a greeting to the world in Panama they say queso pa can you all do that queso pa that's how they say hey what's up that's how they say that so we're gonna say hi to the world with a Memphis heart and soul, a Latino mambo bell. And we need you all to dance with us because we only have 20 minutes left. So if you have any spirit, any energy in you to dance, come on down. All right, come on, Memphis.
experiencia porque nadie sabe los secretos de nuestro pasado somos luceros en la noche somos guardianes del legado
That's Making Movies live on Bill Street Caravan. And if you want to know more about the group, you can head on over to makingmovies.world. Up next, Grammy-nominated bluesman Guy Davis takes us through the life histories of the pioneers and innovators enshrined in the Blues Hall of Fame. This segment is brought to you by the Blues Foundation and is also available as a standalone podcast through iTunes. The Bronze Peacock nightclub sat way on the outskirts of Houston. An ocean of darkness separated the club from the city lights. Inside, the place glowed. White tablecloths, buffed hardwood, and patent leather shoes. Clarence Brown sat in front of the bronze peacock bandstand and wondered, God almighty, what is this guy doing to these people? The people screamed and shouted. Women fell out like funeral mourners. They swung from chandeliers and crashed into walls. This guy was better known as T-Bone Walker. He was the bronze peacock personified, a white suit, slick feathers, and sparkling guitar. Clarence stood as T-Bone slipped the guitar behind his head, revving it as he slowly slipped into the splits. T-Bone landed it as he banged the final note. Clarence was a lanky 22-year-old from small-town East Texas on a hitchhiking journey around the state trying to find his break in music. Nothing in any roadhouse prepared him for what he was about to see. A storm hit the stage. Coins, bills, entire wallets, and finally ladies' underwear flew at T-Bone Walker. This night in the bronze peacock showed Clarence Brown a new path. He grew up in Cajun country playing parties with his dad's band. Clarence plucked the mandolin, sawed on the violin, and lately had been sitting in on drums. Once the panties stopped flying, he went up to T-Bone, still stunned at the sight of people swinging on chandeliers, and asked, what make a person do that? Nothing that went down in the bronze peacock escaped the notice of Don Roby, owner of the club and godfather of the Texas night. He stood beside the bandstand, listening to Clarence and T-Bone. T-Bone kind of laughed Clarence off, said, you can't make someone throw a wallet with the drums. But T-Bone was just a small-town Texas boy himself. He sympathized. T-Bone had nothing to worry about from Clarence. T-Bone had two new hit records on the jukebox. He started the Rum Boogie Club in Chicago and palled with Joe Lewis. As Clarence sat beside the bronze Peacock's bandstand night after night studying, T-Bone tolerated him and shared a few scraps, not exactly an apprenticeship, but Clarence picked up E-Natural, on the guitar, and you'd have thought he'd learned to fly. Soon the spring rain came to Houston, cold and merciless, not enough to chill the bronze peacock atmosphere, but its star began to dim. After eight straight nights singing himself raw, T-Bone came down with something. Clarence saw T-Bone take the stage. He heard the shrieks building to a crescendo, but before the first note, T-Bone set down his big guitar and hurried back to the dressing room. Don Roby's eyes jumped from a packed house to an empty stage. In panic, he grabbed Clarence. Boy, get up there. It was just the sort of spontaneous combustion that changes the direction of history. Clarence halfway left his body but felt himself walking up the bandstand. He saw T-Bone's axe sparkling on stage. He picked it up. 
He knew one key, so no decision there. He strapped on the guitar and vamped. He couldn't do this all night, but the crowd cheered him on. They clapped the beat, and the women swung their shoulders, all eyes locked on Clarence. He did the damnedest thing, this kid, who'd clearly been picked out of the crowd, stepped to the microphone. He sang. My name is Gatemouth Brown. I just got in your town. The blues give him that line to repeat, which came in quite handy as he stood in front of 500 people making up the song as if his life depended on it. My name is Gatemouth Brown, and I just got in your town. If you don't like my style, I will not hang around. The women went for their purses. The men reached in their pockets, and the crowd rained its approval all over Clarence Gatemouth Brown. Back in the dressing room, T-Bone Walker found his voice. He marched back out on stage, grabbed his guitar from Gatemouth. Look, T-Bone barked. As long as you live and breathe, don't you ever pick on my guitar again. Gatemouth already was squatted down, stuffing his pockets with cash. He looked up half smiling and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Bone. I don't know what made me do it. Don Roby reacted much more favorably than T-Bone did to Gatemouth's debut. Roby didn't know music, but he recognized that green paper all over the bronze peacock floor. He signed Gatemouth to an exclusive management contract that night and took him to the tailor and the music shop in the morning. They cruised the third ward in Don's caddy. Roby tried to make small talk, asking how Gatemouth got music. Well, I wasn't big enough to go in the juke joint, so I would sit across the street and listen to these blues. My mind would leave my body and travel for miles away, he said. But it seemed like to me it would be traveling to the disastrous part of this man's life. And I said, music's got to be a little different than that. That was enough cosmic talk for Don Roby. The next time anyone saw Gatemouth, he'd be sporting a top hat, tails, and a new Gibson. He ran T-Bone right out of town. While Gatemouth headlined a peacock every night, Roby hit the road to promote his new star. He sold him to nightclubs all the way to New Orleans and returned with a record contract. Gatemouth debuted on Wax the same way he first hit the stage, with a little more practice this time. He named his tune Gatemouth's Boogie. This time, though, no showers of money floated Gatemouth at the end of the song. My name is Gatemouth, I just got in your town. He spent the next two years traveling along his manager's chain of contacts through Texas and Louisiana dance halls. Roby outfitted a station wagon to carry the band and painted the names of Gatemouth's records on the body. Gate made a name for himself the hard way, doing one-nighters at Club Raven in Beaumont, the White Eagle in Opelousas, Skylark Terrace in Corpus Christi, and the Rose Room in Dallas. He got around the honky-tonks, though he didn't make it back to the recording studio. Two years in, Gate had two titles painted on the station wagon. Don Roby wasn't a man known to accept reversal of fortune. When he'd finally had enough of nothing from the record company, Roby told his business manager, Hell, we don't need them to put out Gatemouth's records. Necessity being the mother of invention, just asked the composer of Gatemouth's boogie. This challenge led to a huge breakthrough. Naturally, Roby named his new record company Peacock Records. It was the beginning of the most successful black-owned label of the era. 
There remained just one minor technicality, as Roby's business manager gently asked, Well, how do you make a record? Without pause, the Don shot back, Hell, I don't know. That's for you to find out. Soon enough, Peacock Records launched with atomic energy an electrifying gate mouth instrumental on the backside of the first single. This sounded clearly like an artist traveling beyond the disastrous part of life. First Peacock Records headquarters was the back room of a liquor store. The company grew so fast, its offices took over the bronze Peacock and put the nightclub out of business. Peacock Records made some of Little Richard's earliest sides and would bring the world songs like Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton. Eventually, Don Roby's roster of recording artists included Bobby Blue Bland, Junior Parker, Johnny Ace, and O.V. Wright. It all traced back to the moment Roby pulled skinny Clarence Brown out of the crowd because T-Bone Walker caught a cold. Gatemouth didn't turn out too shabby himself. After 10 years, he shed Don Roby's top hat and tails. Brown climbed into his own comfortable cowboy boots and grabbed his old violin. With his trademark pipe clenched between his teeth, Gatemouth became an icon of eclectic American styles. He played Cajun fiddle, electric guitar, mandolin, and even went behind the drums in all corners of the world. Along the way, Brown picked up a Grammy and gained recognition from guitarists as far out as Frank Zappa. He lived by the notion that struck him outside a Texas juke joint. Music's got to be a little different. listening to the Blues Hall of Fame podcast brought to you by the Blues Foundation. The Blues Hall of Fame podcast is produced by Bill Street Caravan for the Blues Foundation, written by Preston Lauterbach and voiced by Guy Davis. For more information on the Blues Foundation, go to blues.org.
Bill Street Caravan has brought the sounds of Memphis to public radio airwaves for more than 20 years. And now you can see what we've been talking about. Check out our series of digital shorts through our website or go to iListenToMemphis.com. I Listen to Memphis is about Memphis music today, the people who make it, and the places and culture that fuel it. iListenToMemphis.com. Bill Street Caravan is supported by awards from Memphis Travel and Tennessee Arts Commission. We're back, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Making Movies, live on Bill Street Caravan. Tia, what was the atmosphere like at Bill Street Music Fest when Making Movies was on stage? Well, you know, JB, this was the festival's return to Tom Lee Park, so many of the audience who was out there, they were already had an air of expectation about maybe getting back to some familiarity. And here these guys come from Panama and, and Mexico and Kansas City, and they rock the stage in maybe unfamiliar, but familiar from the soul aspect of it. It was just an electrifying atmosphere. Uh, Enrique's uh, passionate pleas on, on the microphone, man, and coupled with all of those guys' dynamic musicianship. I mean, it's just, it's a show you enjoy from a feeling perspective and from a technical perspective. You know, you already mentioned one of those covers that they play that is a little bit suspicious. Sometimes people don't know what to do with it. It's one of my favorite songs. Listen, I won't be ashamed. I love some tears for fears. Everybody wants to rule the world in a style that's unlike anything you've ever heard before. I mean, how do you even put that into context? I don't think you put it into context. I think you stand there and you stare and wonder like I did. <laughs> uh, both times I saw them perform that song, man. Just a great, great performance uh, of a classic tune. Man. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I've been really interested in some of the things that this band has been doing outside of music. As we mentioned earlier, one of their big passions is education. And they have Enrique and his brother and the boys from the band are truly involved with a school that helps to teach young people education and other life skills. And so they're working on a documentary right now, actually, and uh, they wanted to connect with someone in Memphis who also blended music and education, and I thought of the perfect person for them. Who was it, JB? Well, you might know a little oh. song called <laughs> Ring My Bell. <laughs> was it, was it, <laughs> I guessed it with my questions, right? <laughs> Absolutely, well, Anita Ward, who is Memphis's premier disco queen, had a single in 1979 that set the world on fire called Ring My Bell, but in the meantime, she's been a teacher. So we got Miss Ward and Enrique together, and they filmed her thoughts about how music and education intersect. And I can't wait to see what they came up with. All I know is that Enrique was very, very happy with what they did. I wasn't around for it. Man, that's a great blend of the not-so-distant past and, and the present and future of music, not only here in Memphis, but uh, worldwide. I mean, you've got Making Movies. That's a global um, influence and globally impacting band. Absolutely, and they definitely are going to make an impact on Bill Street Caravan with our global audience. I know that they're waiting with bated breath, so let's go ahead and let them breathe again. Let's get back into it. This is Making Movies, live on Bill Street Caravan. <laughs> Yeah. 
Okay, I just want you to know that ever since I said you guys band name, and I never ask a band where did their name come from, but I've been just going, make a man, wonder where they, hmm, wonder where that came from. What was that moment where you were sitting around and you went, I got it! I think that for a lot of bands, um, it doesn't tie in with the message, but ours actually kind of does. When I was a kid in Panama, I loved my dad's rock and roll music collection, and I fell in love with a song by the Dire Straits. My name's Enrique, I'm the, the singer and guitar player in, in the band. But everybody's memories of me being a toddler running around was dancing to a Dire Straits song and singing when I didn't even know how to speak English, but I would sing some syllables, semblance of whatever the lyrics were to this song. Mm -hmm. Well, my dad had one of their records that is called Making Movies, but the font on the cover of the vinyl, the band name Dire Straits and Making Movies are the same font. So I, would, I remember asking him, is that the band name or is the band called Making Movies and the album's called Dire Straits? which would be maybe a good album name. Dire yeah. Straits would work for an album name. I didn't know which one was which, and he goes, no, the band is Dire Straits, the album's making movies. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool band name, and I kind of kept that in my back pocket till we formed this band, and I thought, what about this? And it, it ties back into this idea that, you know, the music impacted me, moved me so much as a kid, I would cry when they wouldn't play the song on the radio, and uh, I didn't speak English. You know, music is, music is its own language. Artists take their art form and express it in different ways. One, there are a lot of groups, especially in popular music, that they they talk at you. They're presenting this thing and you're looking for that moment and something they say is like, yeah, yeah, I know what they mean there. But then there are other artists, and I think it's found a lot in world music, that it's more communal, that you feel like they are talking with you. There is a conversation that's going on when you're listening to this music, and that's sort of how I felt when I listened to you guys, that I felt like there was a conversation. And I'm curious, for you as artists, how do you sort of approach the music-making piece so you can cross over to that we want you involved. You're, we're not just doing this for our own edification or our own egos or what have you, but this is all of us here together. I'm not sure how we do that, but I know that we intend to do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just put it by putting that intention in. I think the U.S. has a very capitalistic view of what music is, and it forgets that this idea of like selling recordings and, and having superstars is super short in the time span of human beings, and music is super old and mm -hmm. a part of the fabric of communities long before you could have a hit record. And it will be that long after hit record. Maybe you could someday in the future there won't be a thing as hit records. And, music will still be a fabric of community in people's lives and and we've always felt like that our role as musicians is kind of in service to our community and if our community becomes a huge enormous audience great but if our community is uh, the family get together at Christmas our band literally is the band for the family get together at Christmas and we're serving the same role maybe it just happens naturally when you have that attitude 
On the show, we often talk to artists, and one of the continued threads that we hear through artists who enjoy playing Roots music and who excel in it is this sense of family that comes with it. And more often than not, it was family time together where they sat around playing, singing songs, sharing ideas and culture. That thread of family and sharing that way, do you think that it affects you as musicians when you're going out and you're playing specifically to people you don't even know? I am certain it does. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of pass this over to Juan Carlos because his family, in a lot of ways, they, they have a big family in Kansas City. Has, uh, they've adopted Diego and I, and, and we learned a lot of this culture from them, the culture of being a big family together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so my mother started a Mexican folkloric dance group uh, 35 years ago in like the West Side neighborhood, which is like more populated by the, the like first generation Mexicans who came to the Kansas City. In that neighborhood, and um, so me and my brother Andres have been dancing since we were three, four years old, and we have two older brothers who also grew up dancing. So she did it mainly to preserve the culture, to preserve, you know, what it is for us to be proud to be Mexican and not to lose that sense of um, heritage. Because nowadays we, I see it more than ever that a lot of my friends or a lot of people who I grew up just lost, lost that sense of being mm-hmm. either Mexican or Latino. So for us, it was embedded as a, at a very, very young age. And we've always been a part of the community. So thanks to our mother, thanks to you know our family, uh, my uncles, my brothers, that who all have been involved since a very young age, that we've been able to share this message with them. And I think we continue to do, I feel like it's our job now to continue that. And um, I feel like it is very important that we continue to serve our community, that we serve our people. And not only just our people, but everybody who's, who, who we tend to bring into our family, like yeah. Enrique said. Um, it could be from any culture, any background. So I think ever since then, that has been embedded. I think we will continue to do it, and uh, I hope it, we, just, we can't stop. I, I want to talk a little bit about the new record. You guys have sort of weaved together all of these different styles and picked up a little bit here and a little bit there and I sort of feel like that's what this record is and so in creating the record itself I know that y'all had a lot of hurdles that you had to go through so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that we were just at a haunted Memphis bar the old uh, brothel. Ernestine and Hazels. Ernestine and Hazels. Yeah. Ernestine and Hazels. For a little while, we thought that our record was haunted or, or had been possessed because at every turn, something would go wrong and that would delay this process. So it was definitely a challenge. We decided to name the record after a Native American saying, a Mayan saying. Um, they would say, in la kesh alakin as a, as a greeting. So if we ran into, hey, what's up? How you doing? Like, that was their way of doing that. Somebody would say, in la kesh, and the other person would respond, hey, alakin, which would mean... I'm another you, and you're another me. And I thought that that was such a beautiful way to greet each other at your everyday exchanges. And so we travel enough, and we have family. I have family in Venezuela, and have family in Panama, and we have our Kansas City family that's kind of adopted, and we all have friends and family littered across this country. And there's a lot of differences in cultures in this continent, really, but in this country, too. And but when people are hurting or when people love on each other, there's some universal stuff in that. And we're like, how do we make a record that captivates that feeling of like the bond that we can have as our band travel with my Venezuelan cousin and we're hearing about his struggles with the riots in Venezuela. And like, how do we explain that his 
situation, though circumstantially entirely different from our buddy in LA's situation and circumstance, or our buddy in Kansas City's circumstance. But the like struggle to find a place or to find your path or to feel accepted and feel like you have a home and, and everything's gonna be okay, that those feelings are the same. It doesn't matter the uh-huh. language, the person, the political circumstance or emotional circumstance. And that's what we were trying to do is like, how do we make music that, that makes you feel like that feeling that we get when, when we're like, wow, this world is insanely huge and we're all so similar. Well, on that note, uh, thank you guys for chatting with me on this wonderful afternoon. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank, <laughs> thank you. And let's go back to more from Making Movies at The Levitt Show. Ella camina revés por Selena Y me jura que ha visto Esa torre de Babel Ella sabe que la vida Mucho más caín que haber Me escribió este poema ahí En un pedacito de papel Que dice Se ve 
how you doing? We just got back from Mexico City last night just to be here with all of you. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to do something beautiful tonight, all right? You guys ready? I just want you to follow me, all right? All right, here we go. Follow me.
Thank you, Memphis. We love you so much. Thank you. That was Making Movies, live on Bill Street Caravan. For more information on Making Movies, look them up on Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, anywhere you can find some music. Yeah, and be sure to look out for your local listings to see if they'll be in your area. You don't want to miss them. Caravan is supported by awards from Memphis Travel and 
Tennessee Arts Commission. We'd like to remind our listeners to please show your support for public broadcasting. You won't find programming like this anywhere else. 